Hey guys, Tim and Chris back with you here for episode 30. We got a lot to talk about today. Yeah? We do. I'm excited. So Tim and I... It's good stuff. Yeah. So Tim and I share, excuse me, share a Slack channel. And throughout the week, uh, different things that maybe we don't discuss live, we throw in there and just park as topics that we might want to hash out on the show. And... Tim was very active in there this week, and one of the things that I think is worth talking about right out of the gate is something probably more specific to us here in Arizona than in most other places, but as most people know, Arizona has largely reopened. We are allowed to have dine-in restaurants, uh, with, with some limitations, of course, um, and one of those limitations just dealt with capacity and spacing and things like that. Now, there, there are certainly rampant examples throughout the news of restaurants or bars not adhering to this. But you posed the question of how does a restaurant make money at 50% capacity? And I think the simple answer is it doesn't. And, and there's, a, there's a more broad question here of, you know, it's one thing to say we're reopening, but being able to place these types of restrictions on businesses totally throws out this idea that when we get back to normal is a relevant topic of conversation because there is not a normal to get back to. We've talked about it in a lot of different veins in the last couple of weeks, but that's not going to happen. No, no, it's not going to happen. I mean, so a lot of, a lot of economists have been listening to lately or, or talking about um, how right now there's, a demand shock, but we're going to see a supply shock because it's going to put a lot of folks out of business. So the answer to how does a how does a restaurant make money at fifty percent capacity? The answer is it doubles its prices. Mm-hmm. So the the answer long term is is sort of inflationary. I can imagine, although I think there's deflation first and probably stagflation. Well, so think of this. Um, bars and restaurants were able to open on Monday in Arizona here. And we're, we're recording this on Thursday the 14th. I have tried to go to probably 10, 10 to 15 restaurants, let's call it. And not one of them has been open for dine-in because they cannot find uh, people to to staff their stores. They also have supply issues when it comes to food and things like that. But they cannot find employees because we've created a situation where these employees are making a heck of a lot more at home than they actually are working. And yeah, it was relatively short notice, but we've got ourselves in a little bit of a quagmire here, and I'm not sure anybody realizes just how deep it is. Yeah, it is kind of a mess. It's it's it is kind of a mess. I mean, you start, you know, and then the thing, it, it, not that not that it's the wrong thing to do, right? So of course you got to increase unemployment benefits if you're going to all of a sudden shut them off, a bunch of companies down, and put people out of work. You don't do that. You got a you, you got a real problem on your hands. Uh, at least socially, you would have a, you would have a real problem on your hands. But I think I think we're not we're, what we're not weighing is the fact that even though these people are getting paid, they have money to spend, what are we producing when we have, you know, now 30, another 3 million unemployed today, 
reported. Um, another 3 million unemployment claims. I, I think that takes us, I'm losing count. We're either at 33 or 36 million. I believe, I believe we're at 36.1. Is it 36.1? That sounds very precise. So we're going to go with 36.1. It's a lot. It's a lot. And, and okay, so, so their unemployment, they, they have benefits, uh, great, but what are we producing? And so what is that economic impact mm-hmm. when you pay people not to produce? That seems odd, right? And so that's why I say I expect deflation first and then stagnation because if deflation doesn't just plain continue. Uh, because, I mean, you, 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 you got to think at some point, they run out of benefits. And then what do they choose to do? Not to mention, I was listening to a, uh, an economist uh, for an investment conference, this virtual investment conference. I'm, I'm a big fan of John Malden. And um, he's got his strategic investment conference. I've never been. I've always wanted to go. And, and he's doing it virtual this year uh, for obvious reasons. And... Uh, one of the guys was suggesting that, that one thing that's overlooked is even if you account for and say of all these unemployed, 78% of them believe it's temporary. Let's just assume that. 12% of them, no, I'm sorry, 22% of them believe that it's not temporary. Mm-hmm which would mean we've lost over 5 million jobs permanently, not coming back. Now, arguably, the other 78% are probably optimistic that their jobs are coming back. Some of them will, probably a lot of them will, but some aren't. And so that, and, and then, and then he pointed out he pointed out the um, labor force participation rate dropped mm-hmm. like two and a half percent, I think it was. And um, you know, if that's if that's the case, what does our production actually look like? That was wrong. I lied to you. It's actually thirty six point five million. I'm going to venture a guess here, and I haven't sat down and put pen to paper and tried to to hash this out. But of that thirty, let's say thirty six point five million is the is the number going forward, which you know sure, surely it's going to continue to rise. But let's just say, especially now as we're seeing other states, I think even like California, for instance, talking about continuing this thing through August or September. I bet you of that thirty six point five million. At least fifteen million of those jobs don't come back. Yeah, it could be. I mean, not to mention, like it, it took us, it it took us ten years to create to create those jobs. Yeah, what what level are we at yeah, now? Because at twenty million, that was the ten year number. So what, where are we at now? Are we at eighty eight? You know, go back to nineteen eighty eight. Where how far back have we gone here? Pretty far back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're we're in the time I mean, machine is, right now. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. But something you said this week that really was interesting to me is just how quickly our gods are destroyed. So you're talking about this in the context of just, there are these things that we believe in. We we believe in the financial markets. We believe in healthcare. There are just all these things. And you know, these things that are institutions just seemingly overnight uh, just, just went away. And it's funny, I'm, I'm thinking back to 08 with the housing crisis. And, you know, there was that conventional wisdom at the time that, you know, mortgage-backed securities were were solid gold and, and rock solid, and obviously they weren't. But you know, this is so much more widespread in just the number of things that are not as stable as we might have once thought. Yeah, the so it, I'm scrambling to try to find it now. It was it was an extremely interesting uh, presentation. Um, yes, here it is. Bear with me. This guy's name's Rene Aniano, and he gave this presentation talking about gods that have failed, like these things that we put our trust in. And he had this really interesting, um, he had this really interesting chart that, that showed how quickly our gods failed. And he had God number one, the military, the thing that we put our trust in that makes us feel safe. And, uh, you know, he's got this timeline of, from, uh, you know, into the, into the first Gulf War through uh, Colin Powell's speech at the UN on, in February, 2003. And it lasted 4,361 days. And then God number two, we put our trust in finance. And the peak being Greenspan's bubble speech in 2002 through the Lehman bankruptcy in 2008 and its half-life of 2,200 days. Um, Then the God of technology Uh, and each one of these things representing things that betray us over time. uh, you know the military um, and and their comments about weapons of mass destruction and you know finance and it letting us down when the market crashed in 08 and then technology its peak with the iOS 4 update is where he defines it and then um, not to get too political here but Donald Trump's election when we um, start realizing that a lot of this technology Technology is is used to uh, manipulate us in certain ways, and that was twenty three hundred days. And then he go he talks about the god of medicine that we've put our faith in this time, and uh, he believes the peak when we began putting our faith in it was in February, uh, and it lasted through March. Uh, he believes it lasted twenty nine days, 
And the reason he believes that is because we went from models suggesting too many, two million people were going to die to models suggesting less than 200,000 people were going to die. Um, you know, and it's off by a factor of 10 and that, that half-life he defined as just 29 days. I thought that was really fascinating because we, we really do. We really have as culture and society as Americans put our trust in these things. And they've, they've let us down in various ways. And they really have. And what, what this reminds me of is uh, actually Howard Marks's me- uh, memo this week. And so uh, if you guys don't know who Howard Marks is, Look it up. Oak Tree Capital is is Howard Marks, effectively. And the stuff he writes is solid gold. But at the end of the memo this week, and the memo was you know 11 or 12 pages just dealing with uncertainty and why we can never really be certain about anything, especially using using past precedent, does not necessarily indicate anything in the future. Howard closes uh, the memo by saying, uh, or by quoting Voltaire and saying, Doubt is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. And that makes me think of one of my absolute favorite quotes all time. And it was, it was actually in a book about zealots uh, and why there are certain corrupt leaders and how they're able to come and sustain power. But uh, it says, it is the certainty that they possess the truth that makes men cruel. Hmm. And I, I love it, but I look back at at the COVID thing, and let, let's be clear: we need to be able to separate the idea or the the personal impact of COVID for individuals from the response here. And what is concerning at the time is it was with such conviction and certainty that we were told how widespread this was and that that certainly didn't come to fruition the way the way it did now you could make arguments say well it's because of the things we did that this changed or or whatever but it it gets this large idea that we are unable to say i don't know sit around meetings in your boardroom and ask somebody a question you can absolutely tell when they're scrambling for the answer but why is it that we can't just say you know what I don't know. Let, let me go try to figure out the answer to that or check some numbers and I'm going to get back to you. We are more comfortable pulling crap out of thin air that probably has no basis in the truth than we are saying, I don't know. And my question is, why? Is this because of the way we're raising kids now where they always have to have the right answers or they, they've got information rarely at their disposal so they feel dumb if they don't have it? What is it that has precluded us from saying, I don't know, or somehow viewing I don't know as if it's an indictment on our intelligence? I think there's something just about our nature that we crave. We crave someone that can divine, divine the future in some way, whether that be, you know, in finance through financial models and projections and, you know, statements by the federal reserve or whether that be by these you know by these doctors that have said two million people are going to die in the u.s um now none of that is to say that this is um in any way not legitimate or 
um, overblown. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I don't believe that. Um, what I what I am saying is is we put all these experts up, and and we assume we assume they're experts because you know they're at the top of some company or organization. Um, you know, we, 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 we put them on TV and we always believe the experts are on TV, right? Um, they're on the screen. Uh, when, when the reality is, is one of us are probably just as capable of quote unquote, divining the future as any other. And, and I, I, I think that that truth comes out when we question our experts, which is one of the things that makes America a really great country is that we have the ability to do that. And, um, but I, I think, I think that we want experts too much. We want someone who's going to step forward and lead and say, I have a plan. I have a vision of the future and what it looks like. And this is where we're going. And that person could be totally wrong. Um, and, and in some ways that needs to be okay, but we need to remember that person might be totally wrong. It, well, it's, it's absolutely true, and I, I sometimes think about this just in the sense of the talking heads on TV. You know, so you know, I have CNBC out of my office all day long, and I I submit to you that yeah, it's it's nice to stay on top of the news and the way things are moving and all this, but you must view it purely as entertainment because that's what it is. It's you know you, you see the criticism of the news all the time, saying oh they're just there to scare you or whatever. And fr- frankly, the financial or the business news is kind of the same thing. But I see all these guys on here talking about you know, this company's going to do this or the market's going to do this. And in the last hour, we've had two different people say we're going into depression and two different people say we're entering a significant bull market. I, I just ask myself all the time, if these people are really to be taken at face value, why are they telling us about it and why aren't they doing it or running their own company? And I real I realize that short sighted. And you know, hell, we're sitting here right now talking about this in a form where we're going to share it with people as well. But I do just I inherently question. I'm inherently skeptical of people telling me these things, uh, not just as opinion, but as if they're something to to lean heavily on as some semblance of truth. There isn't there isn't going to be certainty, and there's not. Well, there's probably never going to be certainty. But but now more than ever, we can't expect to have that feeling of it, yet we have these people telling us this all the time. Yeah, I think, you know, the, 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 they, they probably, despite the fact that we um, think we tell people, like, we're just, we're just on here talking about what we think, right? Uh, but we've been there's like these social constructs i think where for for decades we have been told that the people on the radio and the people on the tv those are the smart people those are the wise people those are the people we should be following those are the leaders those are the powerful people because there were these gatekeepers and 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 that i think that i think that that framework of understanding is is still intact although it's starting to fall apart starting to crack people are starting to realize oh wait a minute that's that's staged there was a there was a um uh 
a tweet the other day uh, by some news source that was talking about, I, I believe it was one of the major news organizations. They staged these lines mm-hmm. at, um, did you read about this one? They staged mm-hmm. these lines at, uh, at one of the testing sites in order to make, make it look more dramatic, right? As they were filming. And, and then people later on came back and, and said, Hey, we heard that this was staged. Was it staged? And the nurses and stuff were saying, yeah, it was totally staged. Was, you know, we got here and there was no one here. So they, they called a few folks and, 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 and staged it. So they, they could still film. But, but I think we have to realize that that's a lot of the things that we hear, a lot of the things that we see, it's a show. And, and that show sometimes is made for our entertainment, uh, which could be fairly innocent. But at the same time, staging lines at a testing facility when there's a global pandemic feels, feels very scary. When the reality is, is it's not scary. There, there was no line at this particular place. That doesn't mean there aren't lines elsewhere. It just, I, I just, I just find it fascinating that you put somebody on a mic, you put somebody on a stage, you put somebody on a screen, and we all of a sudden give them some sort of legitimacy or expertise in a certain area, rather than weigh the merits of their statements and check what they're what they're doing. Um, we're, we're, we've, it's, it's almost as if we've moved from the information age to the disinformation age. Well, you say because it all the time, but we're in an attention economy. Oh, yes. I do believe that, that he who controls his attention uh, wins. Uh, well, well, think about but this. You, but my, point in, my point in the previous statement was just in saying that, you know, it's funny, you know, we've got this this Slack channel that, that we're involved in, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And, uh, with a group of, of other, you know, business leaders and, and, um, uh, folks and, and, you know, there's, they're sharing information on cultural life news about this whole thing. And one, once one person who believes one thing will share certain facts and information. And then one person who believes the completely opposite will share his facts and information. And, and Chris, you said something earlier in the week that was really interesting. You said, I, I don't know which facts to believe. Uh, I think I, think I, I said it last week on the show know. that, you know, you know, we use data the way a drunk uses a, a street post or a, uh, yeah, or right. a, a street light post. Right. You know, it, it's for support, not illumination. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But that's right. the reason I talk about the attention, though, is because Look, look at how many news sources we have in this country. So obviously, you know, we've got blogs, internet, all that. But you know, for the major networks, um, you have Fox on one end, and then you have, let's say, MSNBC or CNN on the other. And so my question is, if they're both reporting the news, how can they be so dramatically different? And, and the answer is, they're not reporting the news. They're using the news to entertain us so that they can sell advertisements and make money. And the way they do that is, now generally to your point, by scaring us, which has statistically shown to be the best way to, to get people to pay attention to something. But you know, growing up, it never occurred to me that the news would be dramatically different from one network to the other. You know, it's, 
But it is, and it's because it is not about news. It's not about information. Despite what the the breaking news thing and the the little lead in that says need you new or news you need to know, and you know all this stuff that they do to scare. It's not neat news that I need to know. This is about trying to capture my attention and capture dollars. That that's all it is. So let's not conflate this here. Right. I prefer I prefer opinions because at least because I don't think you can get around an opinion. I don't think I don't meaning I don't think that you can present unbiased information. Your information is going to be biased. At least come out with what your bias is. That's why the opinion section of the Wall Street Journal is probably the most meaningful thing that every college graduate should read. Because they come out and say it's opinion. (laughs) You know, it's I frankly I do wish that every child in this country would just read the opinion section of the journal every day. And the journal does a good job, I think, of giving opinions from multiple sources uh, or, or multiple vantage points. But it, it is ironic to your point that we have the opinion section in the journal when theoretically everything is an opinion. Yeah, it's all, it's all an opinion. It's totally an opinion. You can't present unbiased information. And the, and the thing where when you confuse opinion and facts is why you end up in arguments. You know, like facts don't change. Opinions do. Yeah, absolutely. Opinions can change. So the question I have for you, this is a total segue here, but if the risk-free rate is artificially held down, are we missing pricing risk? (laughs) That was something I put on our list. That's definitely not something I would ever ask. That's been wondering, that's been... That's been wandering around in my head, wandering around in my head. That's not the phrase I'm looking for. It works. Uh, floating around in my head, that, that thought. Um, you know, we, the Fed increased their balance sheet from $1 to $4 trillion to get us out of the Great Recession in a way. They've now uh, increased their balance sheet from, from, from 4 to almost $7 trillion. Uh, and there's probably another two and a half at least behind that, just based on the on the announced um, uh, various bailout packages and, and plans. And I don't even know if you call any of it stimulus, but that's a different conversation. All those things manipulate the risk-free rate. The risk-free rate for for people that don't know is, is usually considered, uh, you know, the return on U.S. Treasuries. And uh, if we are propping up the Treasury market, uh, that means we're, we're, we're pushing down the yield. Uh, when prices of the Treasuries go up, the yield goes down. Uh, and so then that risk-free rate that we're calculating everything off of goes to zero. Uh, right now, uh, it's very, very low. and It could be going negative potentially. But there's no such thing as a negative risk. There's always a risk, right? Risk can't be zero. Risk has to be something. And so every asset is valued based on the risk-free rate. And, you know, like a cap rate on, uh, say, say uh, maybe a CVS or something. And if, uh, I'm just going to make these numbers up, but let's say the, the 10-year treasury rate was was... 200 basis points or 2%, then, uh, you know, you would want some sort of spread premium on that of, uh, 
maybe 300 basis points or 3%, right? And so you'd buy a CVS single tenant asset for maybe 5% cap rate. That's your unlevered yield. But if you take the risk-free rate and you push it to zero and, and apply the same logic, then 300 basis points on the risk-free rate of zero should be 3%. But that risk-free rate was manipulated down 200 basis points. And so if you, if you back that back out, well, then your margin is only 100 basis points. Your, your, your marginal risk for the increased uh, risk of, of, say, this CBS tenant that we're looking at has now, is now only 100 basis points, not the 300 basis points you were targeting. And so I, I am, we were talking about this earlier, you and I were, Chris, and you mistake, mistook what I was saying. Are we in a fundamental trap? Uh, I, I'm afraid that if we've manipulated the risk-free rate so substantially that it's, it's actually all risk. It's actually, we've, we've, we've mispriced all risk and are we in a fundamental trap because of that? I don't know the answer to that question, but I just don't see, I don't see how that couldn't be the case. You didn't make the risk-free rate go away. You just suppressed it. You know, so we're talking about this in the context of uh, of financial markets. I think about the same idea, though, is the assumption of risk with our everyday lives and the government intervention that we've seen in the past couple weeks. And I realize this is a tremendous tangent from where you were going with that, so I apologize, but um, I got in this debate with, uh, with with somebody that that you and I both know, um, very near and dear to my heart, uh, Tom, the other day, <laughs> and uh, and so Tom is is what we would call a a relatively high risk um, prospect for COVID. So a uh, little bit older, certainly certainly in the in the age groups where you're more susceptible to COVID, and uh, d- does have some respiratory issues. And uh, the debate that we got into was how much risk do we assume when we leave the house every day? And and the point I was trying to make is everything that we do in our life is a subconscious risk calculation. You know, it's I, I get in the car and drive somewhere. Well, there is the risk that wherever I drive, I might get in an automobile accident and, and potentially die. Anywhere I go to eat, there's a risk that I might get food poisoning. There are these incredible assumptions of risk that we do every day. And what I was debating with him was, do, did we, do we or did we, take it how you will, need a full nationwide quarantine effectively? Or is it where if, if you feel or don't want to assume the risk for COVID, you quarantine, but everybody else that, that's out in public is assuming that risk for quarantine? And how we quantify that risk or how we accept that risk is is perhaps the entire core of the debate that we're seeing from both sides in this country in terms of how to actually do we handle something like this how do we get back to business did we need to to close the businesses but you know first of all there's no such thing as risk free we're we're treating covid and this quarantine thing was effectively trying to make it risk free as 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 a public uh or as as a public society there's no risk free I went down a little bit of a rabbit hole there, but but I, I think about that in the same sense right. of 
of risk-free rates in in financial markets. Well, is there really anything that's actually risk-free? Right. Because we're still making an assumption, even when we look at the risk-free rate, we're making an assumption on the federal government's ability to pay us. Well, you know, last couple of years, we've seen that ain't exactly risk-free. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think I think you're I think you're right there. You know, there was a, an, uh, an economist, and of course, hindsight's hindsight's twenty twenty. But there was an economist very early on that I uh, had uh, listened to uh, a, a webcast on. Yeah, I don't recall his name at the moment, but but he had suggested that what would have been a better path was for us to say, you know, if you if you look at the statistics, the probability of of dying of this thing is, is really low until you, unless you have a pre-existing condition or, um, you know, if you're, if you're elderly and those, those numbers don't start rising, um, all that rapidly until you're in your sixties. And so what they could have said is, Hey, and draw this line wherever you want, draw in your fifties. I don't care. You could have said just, Hey, if you're 60 and over, uh, please quarantine your companies can't, uh, can't fire you. Here's their stimulus package. And if you have a pre-existing condition, please quarantine. Um, everybody else keeps circulating. You're going to get sick. You probably your probability of death is 0.01 percent. Um, and uh, you're most likely 80 percent of you aren't going to show any symptoms. Very few of you are actually going to need any um, any hospitalization. Um, uh, that would keep us from overwhelming hospitals. It would begin herd immunity amongst the younger portion of the population mm-hmm. that isn't affected by this, and it would stop the ability of the virus to be able to spread once they had herd, herd immunity. Now, all that's hindsight 2020, and based on a lot of assumptions at this point. But I thought that that was a really fascinating that was a really fascinating concept, given the path that we did choose. And what I'm hoping is, is that um, my assumption is that if this is legitimate, there's going to be a second wave of shutdown. There's going to be a second wave and there's going to be shutdowns and that they'll take that path instead uh, because the economic impact of the, the path that we're on is just is really detrimental. Do you think there are ulterior motives in this? And I, and I hate to think that there are, but... Just with the prevalence that political divides play in our country, well, of course, of course, there is, and and those alternative alternative motives aren't um, may not even necessarily be nefarious, but it's just like an opinion, right? To present the news without an opinion is virtually impossible. To make a decision on how you're going to lead your city or state or or country, for that matter, or company or uh, organization. Um, of course, you have your your bias of which sources you trust for information. You have your bias of uh, uh, you know your tolerance for risk uh, in it. Um, all those things are are ulterior motives, and to, I think to not acknowledge those is is dishonest. Really, um, you know, there's not there's not some priestly class that has uh, you know, divine knowledge that's perfect in any way. Um, you know, people in the financial markets have their bias on what we should do and 
and the scientific, quote unquote, scientific medical community has their bias for what they think we should do. Um, um, you know, the political class has their bias for what they think they should do. And it's imp- I think it's impossible to really get past what those bias are. I think it'd be more productive if we were would just acknowledge these are my bias that I'm unable to escape. This is where I'm coming from. Well, we're so insulated by, by the things that support what we do. You know, go, going back to the cable news networks, right. you know, you know the, the, there's one that I certainly watch all the time. Am I watching it for facts? No, I'm not. It's entertainment, but let's be honest. We are kind of, you know, kind of predisposed to watching things that we agree with. I think it's a very healthy habit for people to watch both both sides of these cable news networks. Just try if you're really looking for truth, but if you're looking at the cable news networks for truth one way or the other, you're you know, not going to be in good shape here for a long time. But we, we just surround ourselves with, with effectively what we want to hear. And I think this COVID thing just definitely showcased that. We have no more facts now than we did, than we did two months ago. We, we can't even agree on the number of deaths, which should be the most yeah. black and white of them all. That was so. There was a, an article that I read the other day. Maybe I told you about this earlier in the week, but there was an article I read the other day that said that said some really high percentage, like over ninety percent of uh, Republicans believe that the death count is overstated and this is overblown, and over ninety percent of Democrats believe that the death count is understated and it's not being taken seriously enough. It is very very odd for there to be that divide and i once again i i I always feel like i'm middle middle america i vacillate back and forth between you know it's overblown or it's not being taken seriously enough i i i I go back and forth on what i think at different times um but it just is fascinating to have that divide it's very odd but you know we have no no more knowledge now than we did before we don't know anymore now you know, we said we had to flatten the curve. Okay, well, I think we flattened the curve. Now we're saying we can't do anything until we have a vaccine, until we've completely eliminated it. Well, let's be honest. We don't know anything. And, and the longer we keep the government, or excuse me, not the government, but the economy shut down in this pursuit of certainty on this, the, the more we're probably going to kill ourselves. Right. Yeah, the... Um, right. I lost my train of thought. No, can that, you do that, that on a my... podcast? Can you, you lose your train of thought? Is that okay? Yeah, you can lose your train of thought on a podcast. We we are human beings. We're not robots. But it doesn't erode my 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 uh, image of being an expert, right? No, 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 no. The, the, in in fact, so, I think okay, it lends to it. As long as the it. millions, as long as the millions and millions still hey, view millions. me as an expert, because I'm on the <laughs> radio uh, podcast. <laughs> um, no, I think yeah. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. I want to sit over here high on my hog because I don't, I don't watch, I don't even have cable. I don't watch the news on, um, on, you know, I don't watch Fox. I don't watch CNBN. I don't even know what it is. CNBC. I don't even watch, you know, CNN. I don't, MSNBC. I don't watch any of those things. I watch Twitter. 
Oh my right? gosh! So I get most of my news on Twitter. Yeah, there, there's nothing polarized and, on Twitter. There, there's no well, spread of of inaccurate information there. Well, that's sort of my point. Is is I get to selectively follow who I who I want to follow and get my information from them, and I get to scroll past and ignore the people that present some opinion that that isn't according to that doesn't resonate with my own. Um, and we, we live in these echo chambers. It's, it's, it's interesting. We live in these echo chambers of agreement and we wonder why the other side thinks what they think. On the minute that somebody doesn't agree with us, you know, we, we jump so dramatically to the, the words that we call them and to the labels that we put on them simply because they have an opinion different than ours. You know, our, our, our society right now is effectively the boy that cried wolf. We have, we have cried wolf so many times, and we've taken things that were ones or twos on a severity scale and treated them like nines and tens, that all you see now, it's 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10, and nobody believes a damn thing, nor should they. Yeah. Yeah, no, they don't. No. Worst case scenario. It's gotten odd. How do you, how do you fix that? How do you, how do you, how do you, uh... How do you not fall into to to your your side of the echo chamber and they're screaming from the mountaintops that something's well if you're trying to avoid if you're trying to avoid the echo chamber you you just have to be disciplined to make yourself look at both sides of something the other thing that that i'm starting to learn is that and this goes into your your point about reading the news I went through a phase, and frankly, I probably need to get back to it, where I did not look at a newspaper or a news network, and that includes anything online, for probably a year or two. My life didn't change one bit, at least for at least for the negative. Um, I was just gonna, I was just gonna say the same thing. Did Did you get that from Tim Ferriss? No, I got it because I sat there one day and I realized that. Nobody, be it my family members or my friends, care about my opinion, nor do politicians or members of the federal government or the military. So therefore, why am I spending my time filling my head with news, which by the way, news in and of itself, like we just talked about, is more or less opinion anyway and not fact. You know, unless the president is going to go on live television tonight and say, there's a gentleman in Phoenix right now. He's on this Leading by the Book podcast. We need his opinion. He is the person that we need to be listening to right now. Unless that happens, I don't really see a point. That's funny. Now, That's maybe funny. it will happen. Tim, yeah, yeah, no kidding. I think, I'm pretty sure Tim Ferriss talks about that concept in, in his, it might be in his blogs, but I'm pretty sure it's in his four-hour work week book. He, he basically says, like, hey, this 24-hour news cycle thing, it's kind of a joke. They keep trying to come up with news. There's not anything important. If anything really is important, somebody will tell you about it. Your friends will tell you about it. And even at that and point, I, you can't trust it anymore either. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you can't trust it, but at least you know what's going on. Like, you know, I first, you know, maybe maybe this is a reason not to do that, but... First, I heard about this whole global pandemic thing was from uh, my business partner who, who you know, 
And uh, he, he said something about it. And so I knew it was coming because he said something about it. Not because I saw it on the news and there was some coverage and breaking news. I was the first person to find out. Yeah, that's the thing. We, we, we all want to be the first, which is just. I think that's the thing that we've lost. Like we, we've really, and I think that's why like stupid shows like this with the, sorry to call your show stupid. My, our show is stupid. I was going to say, it, it's, it's we, our show now. We're in this boat together, buddy. It's a, we're in it together. But, but shows like this where two people are actually having a conversation, I think it's because we've lost that, uh, the ability to actually have a live conversation. We are not civilized people. When we sit no, down and talk to somebody, especially if they're of a different opinion, it's just an absolute, what's the right word? It's just explosion it's of bloodbath. chaos. It's a bloodbath. It's horrible to watch. Uh, and, and nobody wants to experience that either. That isn't fun. That isn't enjoyable. And so when you can sit down like Joe Rogan, maybe let's use Joe Rogan because that guy's really good. He actually might be the, has, most, the most reasonable balanced source of information there is in this world today. Yeah, he can sit down and have a conversation with people of different views and opinions. He can ask them hard questions and he can control the narrative enough to where it doesn't get out of control. And, 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 and being able to listen to that is really valuable because then you can actually hear somebody out rather than the soundbite world that we live in. These long form podcasts, I think, I think are, are what people want to listen to. It's what I want to listen to, frankly. It's what I do listen to. Because you can actually hear somebody out. Well, sure. Well, th- think of this. You know, the example that gets lost is, look at the Supreme Court. You've got um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is um, a very liberal Supreme Court justice. And a few years ago, we had um, Anthony Scalia die. And it comes out after the fact. And by, by the way, Scalia, for those of you that don't know, uh, was very, very conservative. It comes after the, out after the fact that Ginsburg and Scalia were very close, bordering on best friends, who had complete opposite viewpoints. And the funny thing is, with whatever side you're on, you look at that, and it's like you almost view the person that has the views like you do as a traitor, that they were friends with the other side. That's the way our society looks at this right now. And it is so colossally screwed up. But how, how, do we, how do we undo this? That's the whole thing we were talking about earlier, the precedent of all this. The precedent now that the government can say, we are not going to allow you to do business. And so next time it's a little easier. And next time it's a little easier. And next time it's a little easier. So you know, you know what's going to happen now? Well, now the green lobby is going to get into things. And, and they're going to say, oh, you know what? Pollution is really high today. And you're going to see states that have a strong green lobby start shutting businesses down on high pollution days. And they're going to use that as a way to leverage themselves into stronger climate controls. The precedent for all of this and what it means is really, really unprecedented, to, to make a little bit of a play sure. on words there. And, and you don't go back from these things. That, that's the right. problem. You know, when you look, at, you look at, you know, entitlements over the years, you can't take entitlements away once society gets their hands on it. And now you've got not just an entitlement, but, but this relatively unprecedented um, unemployment and, and, and benefits package to help us weather COVID. That's not just that, that those things aren't one time things, okay? Drug dealers don't give you, you know, one little sample or one little hit of their drug and say, you know, you know this is going to be a one time thing. You're going to be good from here. No, 
It doesn't work that way. Once you get hooked on the drug, you keep coming back and you keep doing more and more questionable things in order to get the hit of that drug. And that's exactly what we're doing with the precedent here. Yeah, that's right. That, I mean, that's the thing that, that scares me the most is, is um, you know, the, the overreach of uh, to be able to shut down economies on a, on a whim. I mean, it's almost, I don't even know if I want to say this publicly, but I am going to say it publicly. There's a part of me that, that wants this to be very, 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 very serious uh, in terms of, not that it isn't, but in terms of like the number of deaths, just to prove out, because I think that'll keep the threshold higher for longer. I think the trend is toward what you're, what you're just saying. That's an interesting but point, actually. If, if, I mean, not that I want lots of people to die. That's sick. But at least it would set, set the bar at, you know, you don't, you don't overstep Americans' uh, individual rights for something that isn't totally catastrophic. You know, you know though, I, I understand the premise of what you're saying. I'm not sure it plays out that way in reality. So if you think of like the real shock and awe concept as a deterrent, I've been studying um, the Korean War a lot lately. And what fascinates me about the Korean War is that it was, what, five, ten years after World War II? You know, and, and you think of World War II, you know, World War I was only, what, 20 some years before World War II? And you think of the magnitude of World War I, and in two decades, you know, we're about that time away from 9 11 right now. You know, we're about two decades away from 9 11. You're going back into now this remarkable war, and you know the nation's reeling from that, and right back into to Korea. It it's almost that the more the more magnitude there is for something, the easier it is just to go back to it for some reason. And so, you know, in this case, you you know the the, the idea that you know if you know we we took these dramatic government measures, but we had to because the catastrophic nature of it was so amplified. I wonder if that almost works against us in the sense of, well, you know, we, we took these measures before. We don't want it to be like that again. So we're going to do the same damn thing. It almost, it almost be, it's almost that we're doomed to repeat ourselves out of fear of repeating ourselves. Hmm. Yeah, you could be right. Because right. like you That's know, it's like Korea. We go back into a war in Korea because we don't want it to be like World War II again. Like, well, we don't like war, so we're going to war. Like it, and and I I understand <laughs> there there are times that you have to go to war. Don't don't get me don't get me wrong on that. But it's it's almost like the more we try to avoid something, the more we subconsciously self sabotage to have that exact same thing take place. Right. Uh, it's messed up. You know, go, going back to the news thing, you, you know what uh, the new thing I'm, I'm doing that's really fun is? What's that? When I go into stores, like, so for instance, Costco, you have to stand in line for like an hour to get in now because they're limiting the people in the stores and you got to be masked and all that. Anytime they say, oh, you have to stand in line or, oh, you got to wear a mask, I just start playing dumb and I go, wait, why? And they're like, oh, to, 
to, to keep people safe. And I'm like, wait, wait, from what? And they're like, <laughs> and they're like, from the pandemic. I'm like, wait, the, the, the what? The, what? Hold on, hold on. Dude, what what is going on? Oh, I do it all the time. Oh my God. I do it all the time. <laughs> That's cruel. <laughs> and then, and you show like, I'm like standing in line at Costco, and you know, they're telling me about this pandemic. I'm turning around to people behind me like, hey, have you heard about this crap? Like, what is going on? Hold on, you you, wait, you, you put know, your things you, down and run. Uh, no, because I, I, then I'll be like, "Oh my gosh, well I better stock up." <laughs> and That's funny. oh, speak. Sorry, no, go go on. I'm just I'm just thinking where I'm going to go later today and what potential I have to amuse myself <laughs> in doing it. Speaking of stocking up, that that uh, virtual conference I was telling you about. The uh, here it is. David Rosenberg spoke. He said, Americans added more, more food to their pantries than they had in the last 15 years combined. How is that possible? In the last, does he mean like the average days of food we have in our pantry? Is that how that's calculated? Is it like days of I, cash I on know. hand for a company or something? I, I don't know. I mean, it, it was, it was. That that was a direct quote of what what he said. Americans added more food to their pantries than they had in the last fifteen years combined. Yeah, well, you know who doesn't need more food in their pantries? Americans. Think so? Yeah, we we have a healthcare crisis country that is much greater than COVID and has been around for much longer than COVID. And that is the suicide by food that that we have embarked on as a country. The reason that we have, have yeah, 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 we have a tremendous sure. crisis, and it's. And I think you and I might have talked about this a year or two ago, just about the coming catastrophic healthcare crisis in this country because we have generations that have grown up with incredibly terrible diets, which is funny because our diets have become worse as we have learned more about what a bad diet is, which maybe back to our previous point about self-sabotage seems to be the case. There is, there are storm clouds rolling in for our healthcare right now. And, you know, back to the universal healthcare, that's why people had such a, a tremendous issue with it because we cannot take care of ourselves with the means that we have at our disposal yet we want to put ourselves in a pool with with other people for that that just doesn't add up it's not going to work right yeah i mean i think most people don't realize how addicted they are to sugar and how prevalent sugar is it's not like just eating candy it's in everything it's a drug like makes it is a drug so there's there's that famous study where they put um a, a bottle of water uh, mixed with sugar and a bottle of water mixed with cocaine for in a cage for rats, and the rats got addicted to the sugar. Huh. Let's, let's think about that for a minute. You you can't find anything without sugar. You go to the grocery go to the grocery store and look at the marinara sauce, and try to find one with less than, let's say, eight or nine grams of sugar in a serving. Hmm. It's impossible. 
It's just about yeah, impossible. It, yeah, it's in everything. It, in, do you do you know where else it is that that it's easy to get hooked on? It's in sushi rice. It's almost impossible to find a sushi restaurant that doesn't have an incredible amount of sugar in their rice. Really? Yeah. You seem like a healthy guy. Have, have you uh, have you ever gotten off of sugar completely? Uh, I have. Um, and I don't eat a lot of sugar except when, when I have a lot of sugar. Like it's, it's not a daily part of my diet, but there are certainly times when I, uh, you know, I am, I am prone to every couple of weeks hammering down a giant pint of Jenny's ice cream and yes, uh, it's good stuff. But the problem is it, it, it almost sucks not being on sugar because when you do have it, I won't sleep well for like two days. Oh yeah, no doubt. That's why. That's why I asked that question because I've I've done it before. It's painful to detox. Yeah, for, off of sugar, the headaches, it hurts, the irritability. Yeah. You're tired. Yeah, it's it is. It's like worse than a hangover. I wouldn't know. I've never been hungover. That's so weird. I forgot. I forgot. You don't get hangovers. But anyway, so yeah, getting off sugar is terrible. And then what I find is, you know, every once in a while, it's like ah, I really want to, uh, I don't know, eat like cheesecake or or something, whatever it is. Um, if I eat it, it hurts the next day. Like my joints hurt, my back hurts. Like you said, I don't sleep well. Like it just, you feel like crap. And then you think. But then, but then you think once you get off of it, it's like you think, "Oh, geez, I don't want to feel that way, so I'm not going to eat that." When I do really go down that road, I try to make sure that I eat enough that I make myself sick. It's like I'm going to teach myself a lesson so that it's going to be a lot longer before I go back to this. I think that might be something we should talk about in private, Chris. What? (laughs) No, I I think like. um, if I'm going to have sugar, I'm not just going to take a little, I'm not going to have a little hit here and then I'll have a little the next day. And because now I'm starting to build the cycle up in my mind, I'm going to do it. I'm going to really do it such that I'm like, man, that was a terrible decision. It's going to be months before I go back to it, hopefully. You know, you actually, you're kind of right. It, it, it does, it does, uh, just kind of work that way. It's funny. In my own maniacal way, I am making you know, sense. Yes, that's right. You know, one of my favorite things. Uh, is a sliced apple with just a big wad of peanut butter on it. Oh my gosh, I do that a lot. Oh, I love it. It's the it's the greatest thing ever. But I have to eat natural peanut butter. That's the other thing. Can't find peanut butter without sugar. Yeah. Uh, well, you can. You can find it. It's 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 not easy, but you can. But I was. That's what I was getting at. Was um, you know, my wife and uh, our horde to stock up fifteen years worth of food. Uh, as as a typical American, she bought these giant tubs of peanut butter, and so I was I was you know getting spoonfuls of peanut butter and putting it on the apples, and eating it, and I and I realized I started I started feeling terrible, like joints hurt, back hurts, wake up groggy, just feel terrible, and then I realized oh that peanut butter it has sugar in it. Yeah, it's it, and it's, for some reason it's not all sugars. Like you and I both like wine. Wine doesn't do that to me. 
I mean, I feel hungover if I drink too much wine, but like, which you don't. I've never seen but, you drink too much wine. But wine, wine never makes me, um, wine never makes me feel like that. You know, if I have a drink. Well, that's, because, that's because you're drunk, so you don't realize that you feel like crap. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's, I mean, it's got a lot of sugar in it, right? Yeah, in fact, I've actually, I, my palate has totally changed. Well, no, so like the last couple months, I've really, really cut back on sugar and carbohydrates in general, uh, except beer. Beer doesn't count. Everybody knows that. Um, but I'm also finding myself drinking more beer, but more specifically more French wine, because I was drinking a lot of big California cabs, and uh-huh. the sugar was just killing my my sleep and stuff like that. I'm a guy that will have like a half a glass of wine a night. I don't drink a lot when I do. I kind of lose interest. But even on a half a glass of cab, that sugar was killing me. And so I've migrated more to French mm-hmm. wines as a result of it. And I think it's because I've cut so, so many carbs and so much sugar out of, of the rest of my diet that it just made me so heightened to the effects of it. And French wines are a very good safe bet. Like if you want to go... And there's some good priced French wines too, like a good Gigonda, um, mm-hmm. like, like a good Coderone. Little going to be a little bit drier. The sugar content's going to be less, but uh, not nearly the same the same negative effects that that you have with some of these California cabs or even even good hearty Pinots. Hmm. Yeah, I prefer the Pinots. The so the um, you know more about wine than I do. Uh, do they? Do they put sugar in wine, or is it just the natural sugar from the grapes? I don't believe any sugar is added. Now, I'm sure, I'm sure somebody probably has, but I don't believe any is is added. Um, what's yeah, interesting? Maybe that's why. Well, I was going to say is what's interesting is you look at the diet sodas and stuff like that, and you know, say, oh, no sugar, great, I can have a thousand of these. Uh, and admittedly, I will have a diet soda periodically. Um, it actually, so I get really bad migraines as a result of of uh, some brain trauma that I had. And the diet soda helps with my migraines dramatically. Like if, if, I've, if I'm in the midst really? of a migraine, a diet soda helps. And it's funny, a regular soda, like a regular Coke doesn't, but a diet Coke does help. So um, it's not the caffeine? I don't, yeah, apparently not. But because caffeine is like usually something that exactly they recommend for yeah. migraines. Excedrin is basically caffeine, or at least has a lot of caffeine in it. Um, but our body, so take the migraines out of this equation, but our body synthesizes or reacts to the chemicals, the chemical sweeteners in diet soda, basically the same way as it does to regular sugar. Hmm. Interesting. So it's diet soda does not necessarily accomplish what we're looking for so take that as a great i'm not sure how we got on this nutritional bend here but i guess it's a nice not either this is this is uh maybe we should call it tangent by the book well i was complaining about the obesity (laughs) epidemic that 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 is coming to this country and you know that that is that is one of my favorite things about spending time in Europe is, and it's actually funny too, you know, because keto is such a craze here right now. But when, whenever we go to Europe, I eat substantially more carbohydrates than I do here. But just, I think the quality of the food is so dramatically different that mm-hmm. I feel a lot better. I lose, it's funny, I eat my way through Europe every time I'm there and I always lose weight when I'm there. Really? Yeah. 
Yeah. The, the, the quality of the food, it, I just, I feel cleaner. My body doesn't ache there. There's something about it that's different. But are you walking more? Um, well, to be, well, yeah, well, maybe you're burning more calories. Than normal. No, definitely not. So when we go there, we're generally going there to, to ride bikes, but it's no different than, than I do here. So it's not, it's not a change necessarily in, in activity level, but there's something, I mean, and it's funny too, because everybody's smoking like crazy, it seems. And yet people are healthy as can be in Europe. It's very bizarre huh. to me. Yeah, that is strange. It was like, so in, in Belgium, we're riding, you know, here it's, you know, we got this whole keto thing going on right now. You got keto ice cream at the store, which is a whole nother thing because it's all just chemicals, but whatever. Um, you know, but, but you have people that, that, you know, can't look at a loaf of bread without going nuts. You're riding your bike through Belgium. There are automatic bread machines on the side of the road. Like you're in the middle of the countryside. And you pass this like red phone booth looking thing and you go up to it and so oh, fresh bread every day. You go and you put put a couple of euros in and out pops a loaf of bread that you take home. You get a baguette? Yeah, you definitely do. It's it's amazing. I, I go to Belgium and I eat nothing but fresh bread, frites, chocolate, and beer for like two weeks at a time. And I come back like ten pounds lighter. <laughs> you, you know what? I'm moving to Belgium. Might as well. I can't speak a word of Flemish. Uh, I can't. I can't read a word of Flemish either. But maybe I'm going to Belgium. That might happen. Sounds like a win. Yeah, I think it's a good idea. All right. Anything else we want to touch on today? We've gotten way off topic today. You know, I kind of liked the uh, the uh, random walk conversation here. I am just thinking about where I'm going to go later and who I'm going to pretend I've never heard of coronavirus to. Yeah. <laughs> it brings me so right much now. happiness. There, there are two things I do that drive my wife absolutely nuts. Uh, one is play dumb on the coronavirus thing. And the, <laughs> other, the other is if I'm driving down a street and like, like, a, like a residential street or whatever and I see somebody walking on one side of the street, I will honk and then wave the other way. <laughs> i have i have no idea where i picked it up or why we we, we always i think it started in college we called it the the opposite field wave <laughs> and i i do it every time and it always makes me laugh hysterically and there's no good reason why it should hmm. yeah I, I don't i don't have an explanation for that one that's interesting yeah i'm a weird guy so Anyway, I am Mr. Chris Book on Instagram, Chris Book on LinkedIn, Chris Book on Twitter, and you are? Tim Barrett DM on Twitter and uh, Timothy Barrett on Instagram. And Timothy Barrett on LinkedIn. Am I? I think, I think I'm Timothy Barrett on LinkedIn yeah. too. You're, you're not a big LinkedIn user, are you? LinkedIn is, is a strange platform for me. I've got a lot of connections on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I just don't do much there. I think it's losing its value dramatically. You know, there, there was a there was a time where LinkedIn was a really good thing. It was really great for networking, and now it's nothing. I I probably get fifty connection requests a day, all of them starting off exactly the same. I hope you and your family are holding up well through these unprecedented times. 
do you want to buy right. this or do you want to invest in this? Right. It's, it's basically become a giant tool for sales spam. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the connections thing was interesting to begin with, but then everyone realized, oh, wait, if I actually want to utilize this, I need to connect to a lot of people. Then you connect to a lot of people. And then all of a sudden it's all junk mail. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you filter through that? It's too bad because it did have such great promise at one point, but, but, but does Microsoft yeah. own LinkedIn now? I don't, I don't know. I think Microsoft owns LinkedIn now. Did somebody buy it? Is that why yeah. it's screwed up now? I, I'm, I don't know if there's a relationship between that, but it's certainly possible. I really like Twitter. You might be the only person in the world left that does. Yeah. I, well, I'm very active on Twitter. Like pe- people, people reach out to me on Twitter and I respond to them. Whereas on LinkedIn, I'm like, are you actually engaging with these thoughts that I'm putting out or are you just spamming me right now? It just feels very spam, spammy. Yeah, it definitely is. I'd agree with that. So. I like I like Twitter because I like being able to have conversation around certain topics, like an article. Which theoretically you could on LinkedIn as well. Yeah, you could, but like for some reason, I don't know. Maybe maybe I screwed up my uh, my connection list. Do you know what product I logged into? This is how bad it was. So, you know, I've been trying to buy um, various travel trailers or rv type things and uh because i do not have a facebook account i and i need to communicate with these sellers on facebook marketplace i used my mother's facebook account to communicate with with folks to buy things uh, because i'm it's kind of creepy because you're going to show up and you're not a woman there is that problem yes i haven't (laughs) i haven't quite broached that yet The reason Facebook Marketplace is better than than I, I do use Facebook. The reason Facebook Marketplace is better than Craigslist is because you can actually see who you're dealing with. But Chris just cheated. I I absolutely did. But nonetheless, I gotta say, yeah. You know, so I I used Facebook through like probably 2008. Holy crap! Does that product suck now? Yeah, I don't really pay attention to it much. No, and I look at their financials and they seem relatively healthy, and people seem to be using. I do. I went in there and it just it sucks. There's stuff all over the place. There's the the UI is a disaster. I don't know what happened to it, but it was a decent enough product in its in its infancy, but it is not fun to use right now and I don't know what that has to do with anything, but there you have it. Yeah, I don't know. I I'm I am more active on Facebook for sure than I am on uh, LinkedIn. Yeah. Well, you can find him on Facebook. You will not find me on Facebook. I think that's all we got for this week. (laughs) Yes. All right. Good. That was plenty of ramble. Very good. All right. We'll see you guys next week.